0: Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to look at this little passage in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 10 down to verse 19. And Saul is in the city of Damascus now. The last time we met him, he was along the road, do you remember? But he's been humbled, and he's been brought low, and he is physically, and he is spiritually broken, and he is blind, and he is ill, and he has no desire to eat, and certainly no desire to fulfil the mission that he set out upon, Perhaps now he's been abandoned by his retinue of followers, those little force of police or soldiers who had come with him to arrest Christians. And all he can do now is to sit there in a room in Straight Street and pray. And I wonder about those prayers wonder what Saul of Tarsus was praying about. Of course, as a Pharisee, he would have said many prayers, wouldn't he? The Pharisees loved to pray. They did. Jesus had to rebuke them in the Sermon on the Mount because of the manner of their prayers. For they loved to pray, they loved to stand in the streets, and they loved to make it be seen that they were praying. And when Jews prayed in those days, and perhaps among Orthodox Jews today, they had this movement that they did with their body. They moved backwards and forwards like that. And that's how they they prayed. And people would have seen them as they walked up and down the street. And they would have said, look at that very godly man standing in the street and praying. It said lots of prayers. Praying perhaps had been just a matter of formality. Like going to some dead apostate church and mumbling your way through some pointless ritual. Like the Pharisee, In Luke chapter 18 and verse 11, perhaps, he had prayed about himself. What a great man I am. Look at me. Look at my godliness and my righteousness and my pedigree in the Jewish religion. He had said prayers. But I wonder, was this Paul's first real prayer? If it was, what a prayer. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this. Angels rejoiced. Why, when one of God's elect is born, angels stand round his cradle. He grows up and he runs headlong into sin. And those angels follow him. Tracking him all his way. And they gaze with sorrow upon his many wanderings. The fair angel drops a tear. Whene'er that loved one sins. But presently. The man is brought unto the sound of the gospel. And the angel says. Behold he begins to hear. To hear. And he waits a little while, and soon the word sinks into his heart, and a tear runs down his cheek. And at last he cries from his inmost soul, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the angel claps his wings, and he flies up to heaven, and he says, Brother angels, listen to me, behold he prayeth. And the angels in heaven set heaven's bells ringing. They have a jubilee in glory. And again they shout with gladsome voices. For verily I tell you there is joy in heaven among the angels of God. Over one sinner that repenteth. They watch us till we pray. And when we pray, they say, Behold, he prayeth. Spurgeon. And here is a man, and he's in a room, and behold, he prayeth. Maybe the very first real prayer That he ever prayed. But the God who had so violently and suddenly turned the tables on him that day on the Damascus Road, the God who brought him to his knees, is not finished with him yet. There's work to be done. The first stage in that process is to get Paul back on his feet so that he can be prepared for the work that the Lord has ordained for him to do. And God is going to use a man called Ananias of Damascus to do that work, to bring that restoration about. So for a few minutes this evening, I want to look at Ananias. He's a fascinating character. I want you to see Ananias having his worst nightmare ever. And I want you to see Ananias being given one of the most weighty assignments ever. And I want you to see Ananias' willingness to go greatly rewarded. What's your worst nightmare? Not necessarily talking about your worst dream. Sometimes the word nightmare is used to describe some kind of an unpleasant situation or even a person. Can be your worst nightmare. I'm quite sure for Ananias, a command directly from God to go and to meet a bloodthirsty murderer who really, really, really wants to kill him, that just about qualifies as a nightmare situation, doesn't it? So, who's Ananias? Well, verse 10, if you look back to it, just begins with the words, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. That was quite a common name. Don't be confusing it with the earlier Ananias in the book of Acts. There's one before and there's one after. The earlier Ananias was, of course, a man who was married to a woman called Sapphira, who was one of the very first hypocrites in the church, who was one of the very first Christian funerals in the church, who was punished with death. This is a different Ananias. This is a a common, ordinary disciple, a man who lives at Damascus, a man whose name simply means God is gracious. Now, I'm fascinated by Ananias. I like this man, and I like him because he appears on the Bible's pages, or maybe just on one page. And he gets about five minutes of fame. And in that five minutes, he has a part in a sequence of events that will totally change the history of the world. Every Gentile believer, you and me, we owe our lives And our faith to the Apostle Paul, who carried the gospel to the Gentiles, whose message of salvation in the Lord Jesus totally changed the world. And by implication, we owe that to Ananias. For Ananias came and spoke and counseled, if you like, the newly converted Saul. Ananias, in one single act of simple obedience... Impacted the entire world for the gospel. And you know, he didn't even go around the churches and mission halls giving his testimony about it afterwards. He just walked back off into obscurity. He was a man who communed with God says again in verse 10 that the Lord, to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. So we can certainly assume that Ananias was a godly man. A man who was listening to God's word, a man who was praying, there was two-way communication between himself and God. He was living in fellowship with the Lord. When he prayed, he didn't just recite this great big long list of his own personal requirements. God bless me. God bless my family. God bless my friends. And please, God, be nice to everyone. Wasn't that kind of a prayer? It was a heartfelt, sincere, earnest prayer, a two-way process in which he hears God's voice in his word and returns his word to him and thus has a conversation with the Lord. Matthew Henry has a whole book called A Way to Pray. It's really, really worth having. Um, It consists of sections of prayer, all based on God's word, so that you can learn to read the word of the Lord and then to hear him speaking to you in his word and then talk to God about what he has just said to you so that it speaks to your heart. And you can see from that that Ananias was a humble godly believer. Now today we might see a man like Adonai at church. We might see him reading the Bible. He'd be reading the word regularly so that the Lord could speak to his heart. He'd be participating in the worship. He'd be at the prayer meeting. He would take time through the day during the week to pray at home and as he went about his daily tasks. He was a man who was in communion with God. And he was a man whom the Lord trusted to do his work. So in verse 11, we read these words. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, trusted to do an enormous task. Consider for a minute the sheer enormity of what God is asking this man to do. He's not to just sit there and wait for Saul to come. He's not to wander through the streets. He's to actively search. He's to He wasn't just to dander down the street and see if he can find someone who might look like a Pharisee. This is to be an act of search. He's to make inquiries. He's to diligently search until he finds the man he's looking for. And then he's got to go into the house and he's got to interrupt the man who is praying. Now listen, you don't interrupt the Pharisee at prayer. That would be unthinkable. The Pharisee is such a godly man, you wouldn't ever interrupt him at prayer. But more than that, he's to lay hands upon him. Can't see the average Pharisee being terribly happy with that. And he's to believe and trust God to the extent that he will believe that a blind man is going to see. This is your job, Ananias. Think of the enormity of this. There's a man in Street Street who came here to murder you. Now you have to go down and find him and put your hands on him because he's blind at the minute and you're going to make him see. Do you know, I, 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 I would have thought in my mind, well, what if that doesn't work? Do you know, I'm going to be in serious trouble. So it's understandable that Ananias was cautious. Ananias answered the Lord in verse 13. And he says, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he have done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Now I wonder, did Ananias' faith just wander slightly there? I wonder, was he trying to teach God something that God already knew? Or I wonder, was he being disobedient or doubtful? I don't know. I just know that I would have been no better than him. Before I went to a certain church in Belfast as a pastor, I'd been well warned. I'd been to the Banner of Truth conference earlier that year, and I was having a cup of coffee with a a gentleman who was a minister in a church church, And he had been uh, explaining to me that once he'd been a former member of the church that I'd received the call to. He says, are you going to go? Are you going to accept the call? And I says, I think I am. And he looked at me with total amazement and incredulity. He says, I was there. And he turned his back to me. And he did this with his shoulder. He took down his coat. He says, do you want to see the mark still on my back? I'm sure he was speaking hypothetically. It was enough to put me off. I rang the church and told him I was withdrawn from the selection process. Ananias was well warned. Ananias had heard of this man Saul of Tarsus. He already knew what to expect. News travels fast and the church at Damascus must have been bracing itself for the persecution to come. They're bound to have known what was going to happen. Arrests and martyrdoms and being dragged out of your home, men and women and children, humanly speaking, getting an appointment to go and see Saul is like making an appointment with the hangman. It's no wonder that at this point he has some really honest soul-searching to do. You can see why this is Ananias's worst nightmare ever. But Ananias has a weighty assignment. God assures him he must go. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go thy way. Do it. There's words of assurance here for Ananias. The Lord knows exactly what he's doing. He knows better than we know. He knows better than what Ananias knows. This man that Ananias is going to go and see is chosen of the Lord. Chosen for a task. Chosen to bear my name before the Gentiles, before the kings, before the children of Israel. This is a man who has been already chosen. and God's plan is always perfect. It is God's nature to direct the outcome of history. It is our task to trust him, no matter how strange that may seem to us. And to know what Ananias thought when he heard God's plan, William Cooper wrote these words, God moves, in a mysterious way his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head The psalmist wrote, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Ananias, go thy way and take a message to the man who came to murder you. What kind of a message? It was like one of those good news, bad news messages, wasn't it? One of those things that says, well, look, Saul, there's some good news for you. And there's some not so good news. Because, you see, you're going to travel. You will have a life of travel. You will bring the name of the Lord before the Gentiles. And that will mean that you will travel. You'll see the world in your international ministry. But the problem is he won't have a private jet or an executive limousine. Like some of the American tele evangelists that we hear about have. He won't even have what I have, a bus pass. He'll walk and he'll walk for thousands of miles on dusty, dangerous roads, through the wells and the lands of inhospitable tribes. But you're going to enjoy influence. You'll be in some of the most exalted company, Saul. You'll be in some of the most opulent surroundings. You will find yourself in palaces and castles and fortresses and lecture halls and debating chambers in synagogues. You'll even have the privilege of speaking in the Areopagus in Athens. And you'll appear before great people, governors and judges and kings, and one day you'll even get to appeal to Caesar himself. But it'll be a rare occasion when you'll be a welcome guest, it'll be a rare occasion when you will be honored. By those you speak to. Well, you're going to travel all right. And you're going to meet some celebrities all right. And you're going to suffer. Isn't it interesting? Verse 16 For I will show him how many things he must suffer. You see, there's another Ananias, the third one. And we read about him in Acts chapter 23. He's not like Ananias of Damascus. The other Ananias, later in the book of Acts, is the Roman appointed high priest of the Jews. And he's hated by the ordinary people of Jerusalem. And later in AD 66 during a revolt against Roman authority he's going to be assassinated by a gang of Jewish revolutionaries But at the time of Acts 23, Ananias is sitting with the Sanhedrin around him, and before him is standing Paul, recently arrested by the Jews. And then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, says, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. You know what we would call that? And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You know, being punched on the mouth at the command of the high priest was the least of Paul's sufferings. If you turn for a wee moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in your Bible. You will get an idea of what Ananias had to say to Saul of Tarsus that day. And what it would mean for this man to suffer for the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. He's speaking of the hyper apostles that were troubling the church at Corinth. He says, "Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, and deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one." thrice was i beaten with rods once i was stoned thrice i suffered shipwreck a night and a day i have been in the deep in journeyings often in perils of waters and perils of robbers in perils by my own countrymen in perils by the heathen in perils in the city in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often in cold and nakedness, and beside those things that are without. That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, You're going to travel, but you're going to walk. You're going to meet celebrities, but they're not going to like you. And you're going to suffer. Just as you made the Christian church suffer, you will suffer too. You will suffer for Jesus. And you will suffer willingly, for the Saviour suffered on the cross for you. And in Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, he challenges, Paul challenges us also. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So Ananias is reassured and he's recommissioned by God and he knows that God has chosen him to bring God's word to this man Saul and he will be faithful and obey and he will go. And his willingness to serve even though he doesn't know the end product his willingness to trust and obey is rewarded. Verse 17 in Acts chapter 9. Just simply says, and Ananias went his way. And he entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus. It appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hast sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ananias must have known the house of Judas. He went directly to Straight Street, that huge straight avenue that runs from one end of Damascus to the other. And he went into the house and commanded by God, he laid his hands upon Saul. What a thought! And what happens next proves to Ananias that God always keeps his word, that if we obey him, he will always care for us. Saul's sight is restored. In fact, Paul or Luke rather in verse eighteen describes it in his his physical medical manner. And it immediately seems that Scales fell from his eyes. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul rises up and immediately is baptized. And he received food. Do you know what's interesting here? He did exactly what what disciples have always been doing ever since. It says, when he received meat, he was strengthened. Do you know, one of the earliest things that Christians did was that they had meals together. I think they called them love feasts, didn't they? Separate from the Lord's Supper. We tried to do it in Ballymacash and after church on the Lord's Day, we tried to get everybody into the room, the back of the church, and we all sat down we share food together. This morning we had lovely homemade chicken soup. Chicken and vegetable soup. Fresh wheaten bread cheese. Sometimes we have pavlova and apple tart. Because it's good for Christians to eat together. And you know I think here was one of the very first things that they did. To the new Christian Paul. They fed him. It says he received food. Someone gave it to him. Now, I'm speculating here, but I would imagine that it was given to him by the brethren, by his friends in the church. Because whenever um, Ananias went into the church and into the house and put his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. This man's his brother. And he's now going to feed him. You know, The disciples could just as easily have said, oh, we're not feeding him. Why would we do that? He's a persecutor, persecutor. He's a murderer of believers. Let him find his own food. But instead, they did what Jesus would have them do. And they fed him. And Paul later would learn from that too learn from the words of Christ. And in Romans chapter 12, he would say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. So there you have Ananias, a man whose simple ministry changed history, a man who appears on the biblical page and disappears without any fuss, Here we see his worst nightmare ever. Here we see his witty assignment given to him by God to go and to bring this strange message to this man, a message that is going to receive his sight, and yet he's, he's going to have influence, tremendous influence, but he's going to suffer terribly. And we see his willingness rewarded as a new Christian comes into fellowship in the church. So how do we sum up this single ministry of Ananias? What can we learn from it? The best way is just simply to quote the words of Tim Challies. He wrote, And this is the lesson of Ananias that I have applied to my life. Small acts of obedience that are premised on the word of God even when they seem contrary to reason and even when they seem to challenge what seems so plain can have great significance. Our perspective is so small, so limited but God's perspective is wide taking in all of history in a single glance. We need to rely on him, on his word trusting that he will not lead us astray.